another episode of The Information's 411. This is Tom Dotan, reporter here at The Information. Here's what we've got for you for today's episode. I am calling in to two reporters that we have in our bureaus around the country and the world. First off, I'm talking to Wayne Ma out in Hong Kong, who wrote a really interesting story about Vietnam and the surprisingly large business that it represents in the region for both Facebook and Google. Uh, surprising because uh, Vietnam is uh, run by an authoritarian communist government that is in many ways not very welcoming to uh, outside businesses. And both Facebook and Google kind of have to operate differently in order to make a lot of money from the region, but they do make quite a bit of money from the region. Uh, and there's also some changes coming to Vietnam next year that is going to have to change their strategy a bit. And then I'm talking to Zoe Bernard out of New York, who wrote a story about elite athletes at tech companies and why being a gold medal winner, a professional, what have you, uh, ends up being an important skill set to have when you're working at a tech company. And also maybe why founders, executives, and employees at these companies just want to be surrounded by uh, elite athletes. Uh, part of it seems to be just thinking that they're cool, but uh, there really is something to it. So that's my conversation with Zoe. So that's it. Nothing to plug this week. Let's just get over to my conversation with Wayne. You had a story this week that looked at Vietnam and the importance that that country plays in the business of both Facebook and Google. And it surprised me because I just don't think about uh, Vietnam as a major business center for really almost any tech company that I could think of. But I mean, you really laid it out in your story. How, how big of a business is Vietnam for, uh, for Facebook and Google? Well, so what's interesting about Vietnam is that within Southeast Asia, it's, it's probably the sixth largest country for GDP. Um, after you know, Indonesia or Thailand or Malaysia. And um, in terms of GDP per capita, it's very low. Um, mm -hmm. It's like um, Singapore is number one and uh, Vietnam is, like, is I think, ranks. Right. Uh, not, ranks it's not a, not a wealthy country by that right. measure. Um, and population as well. You know, it's, it's probably the third most, uh, third most populated country, you know, Indonesia and, the, and um, the Philippines are one and two. And yet at the same time, at, and yet it is the number one country for revenue for both Facebook and Google in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And, and it has been the fastest growing for the last few years. Right. And, and also, as your story points out, it's just kind of a fascinating twist to it all. It's also its government is an authoritarian communist government, which is not one you typically think of as, as kind of a, a large business center. Right. Um, but at, at the same time, uh, that, that actually has some advantages for Internet access because, you know, 4G mobile internet is actually heavily subsidized as a result by the government mm -hmm. and that's why there's some people online in the country right so but i mean when it gets down to the specifics i mean what is it about vietnam that is is so important uh within that region i mean how did it end up that that country you know comprised such a significant part of its business there i think it's because of the population you know as i said before there's lots of people who have access to the internet um there's a huge culture of young entrepreneurs that are finding ways 
to make money online, mostly through cross-border e-commerce, uh, you know, plays. And, uh, and there's a pretty vibrant startup community. Uh, if, I don't know if you remember, there was this viral mobile game called Flappy Bird. Flappy Bird, out. of course. Yeah, a few years ago. And that was actually made by a Vietnamese developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, you know, it's kind of like the perfect storm, I guess, of, of factors that, that has made it kind of surpass more wealthier countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, or digital online advertising. And, and so, I mean, given the restrictions of, you know, that, that, that company and its government, I mean, how do these companies make it work? How do you end up running a business in Vietnam, uh, given the fact that it's just, you know, it operates very differently than most, you know, country governments do? So, so what Facebook and Google do is they, they kind of told the line. They, they, they sell online advertising in Vietnam, but they don't have local offices or local staff there because they don't want... Uh, to expose themselves to pressure from the government. Mm-hmm. I think in other countries in Southeast Asia that have more authoritarian regimes like Thailand or Malaysia, you know, authorities have actually visited their offices um, you know, to put pressure on them or, or try to raid them, that sort of thing. And, and so they, they, you know, they, they don't want people to be arrested. They don't want offices to be raided. So they, they keep everyone in Singapore. There's, their country teams for Vietnam are based in Singapore and they kind of just fly in and out of the country and spend about half their time there meeting with clients. Yeah, literally, it's just like a fly-in effort, and 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 then fly out. Don't ever set up shop as as as, as much as possible. Right, right. Um, and you know, at the same time, they they try to comply with Vietnamese law as much as they can without, you know, you know, w- without I guess sacrificing all their principles. So, mm-hmm. if the Vietnamese government wants them to remove content, they'll they'll remove it in Vietnam, but they'll leave it up uh, in the rest of the world. And is that something uh, and, that that does that annoy the government? I mean, the kind of like half commitment to that rule. Yeah, I think so. I think that's why they passed this law um, two years ago that basically said that if you are for an in their internet service uh, or an online service, you have to set up an office there and you have to store your data there and you have to be able to hand over that data when we ask. You know, if we suspect people are using it to, you know, uh, you know try to rile protesters up or criticize the government. Um, even though that law was passed two years ago, uh, Facebook and Google and others were given a one-year grace period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that year is almost up. Uh, starting January 1st, uh, technically they're going to have to comply. And it seems like none of them have actually started making moves to do that. Right. And and so I guess that raises the next question of like, do they really have to? I mean, what would happen if they just ignored, ignored what the Vietnamese government uh, has been demanding of them? Right. So that's actually a big debate, you know, within the human rights community, especially that, they, you know, they, they tell Facebook and Google, well, why, why do you even comply with government restrictions? You know, you don't have offices there. You don't have full time staff there. Um, so really, you should be able to do whatever you want. And uh, Facebook and Google say, well, but we could get banned. We could get blocked in the country. But then the counter argument for that is there isn't nothing. There isn't anything to replace them. Right. So like unlike China, which has it's kind of very popular homegrown social networks and search engines. Vietnam, they have these kind of local players, but they're not that popular. And so uh, some odd people say these two, you know, Facebook and Google are too big to fail. You know, and so why are they complying? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's an interesting argument at the same time. What is, I mean, what's the, you know, pl- play this thing out. If, if the Vietnamese government were to block Facebook and Google and there's no real alternative there. Is that going to ferment rebellion? I mean, like it's it's an interesting, I guess, piece of game theory. I mean, like what's what's the argument to that? Well, it would definitely place pressure on the economy mm-hmm. because so many people now use Facebook and Google to sell goods and services or to buy goods and services. 
to advertise and, and also to watch television. Um, you know, more, more people watch YouTube now than regular television. Uh, and so it would create lots of problems for the economy. And then obviously economic pressures are kind of the main reasons why these kind of revolutions happen or, sure. or, yeah, or no. so, so there, there's that, I think there's that big question mark about, uh, you know, whether, whether or not the government knows this, I, I think that's another issue is that some people say like, well, maybe the government doesn't really realize how important it is to the economy. So they'll just ban it without realizing it. Um, other people believe, well, the government is, is smart and they'll kind of weigh everything, you know, like, is it worth it to keep them around? Uh, or, or is the risk that keeping them around and that causing protests and problems, you know, it, you know right. It, I, I got to imagine that's kind of a, a disastrous scenario that neither side really wants to, to, to have play right. out. Um, t- tell me a bit more about the businesses that are run on Facebook in Vietnam. You mentioned drop shipping in the, or drop shippers in the country. What, what exactly is that? Yeah. So drop shipping is, uh, when somebody doesn't hold any inventory or stock, um, and they simply advertise these products. And when people order them, uh, enough people order them, then they go out and try to fulfill the orders by looking for third parties, usually on the web as well, uh, except that they kind of go to wholesalers um, and these kind of like wholesale B2B websites. Uh, they're especially kind of prevalent in China. So if I'm selling, you know, T-shirts, uh, you know, specific T-shirts, I will not buy the T-shirts first and, and carry them. I'll, I'll just kind of be the middleman or, yeah. or the agent. And this is provide, uh, proving like wildly successful in Vietnam. Uh, because of, I guess, like this whole culture of young people and young entrepreneurs. And so a lot of people realized over the last few years that they can make a lot of money uh, at, you know, advertising these products on Facebook or on Google and um, basically, you know, selling, selling them without ever, ever having to touch anything or, or be exposed to the risk of having inventory. So, I mean, what's next then for, for either Facebook and Google? I mean, it sounds like there's this law coming up that or, or they have to start complying with it in the new year. Um, have they already made pretty clear plans to, to figure out their next steps? Or, I mean, th- like the clock is running out. Like, what are they doing? Yeah, so Google's chief legal officer visited Vietnam last year. And Vietnamese state media said, well, he told, he told them they were considering make uh, establish a representative office there. Now, that doesn't mean they'll actually do it. It could just be that they gave lip service to the Vietnamese government um, to say they're thinking about it. Uh, it doesn't look like they're making concrete moves to build these offices or to store data on shore. And, and Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO, has already said he would never store data uh, on in countries with poor records uh, for human rights. Hmm. So it, it looks like there's like a showdown that's going to happen. And uh, it, I guess it's up to the Vietnamese government whether they want to, how far they want to press the issue with Facebook and Google. Uh, they've already put a lot of pressure on Google by pressuring advertisers within the country not to advertise with Google. Hmm. Uh, Facebook's a lot harder because Facebook doesn't ha- have as many large advertisers as Google does, right? These are all these kind of like mom and pop right. know, drop shows. Right. You can't exert the like, same kind of pressure on them. But like, because YouTube is popular in Vietnam, there's all these big major brands like Unilever and Procter & Gamble and Samsung that, that kind of advertise with Google. And, and over the last year, year and a half, they've been put under pressure by the Vietnamese government uh, to, to withhold their advertising dollars. And so... Right. Right, yeah. right. I see. Um, and, and so from Facebook's perspective, uh, they feel like they have a little bit more flexibility, but um, just given the importance of their business, they're probably going to have to do something, it sounds like. 
Yeah, but, but that's something where we're just gonna have to see what it what it is. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, all right. Well, I'm sure uh, I'm sure we'll get more from you on that as it plays out. Um, uh, thanks for joining, Wayne. So, so we know that lots of tech founders and executives and employees all think that they're professional athletes and they imagine themselves to be competitive, I don't know, rock climbers or um, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, expensive yeah. pursuit that they're into. They assume that they're uh, semi-professional at it. But you've actually found out that this is real uh, in, in companies. They actually do want to be surrounded by uh, high level professional athletes. Um, what exactly did you find as you dug into this topic? So um, there's been a, a long history of different industries hiring athletes, and I think that's bleeding into tech progressively. But I think it's a little bit, I don't know, in some ways to me, it seems unique in the tech world. And my own personal theory is that there is sort of an idolization of the way that people in tech think about athletes and that think about sports team you always have like i don't know so a billionaire is always going out and, and buying a trying to buy a sports team sure um so i think and it's like there's so many people who are like weekend warriors and they're you know getting involved in marathons or really um competitive extreme sports and so i think that having a professional athlete or someone who has participated in sports in at the collegiate level is very enticing for an employer because it sort of symbolizes all of these attributes that Silicon Valley really um, values as far as being super determined. And right, risk right, and right. It, it fits yeah. into like hustle culture, right? I mean, that being oh, such a huge thing out here. Yes. Yeah, these guys are literally hustling uh, in their sport. They're not, not hustling people like a, like a con. Um, so, I mean, you talk to some people who are, you know, part of their hiring credentials, and I'm sure that they're qualified in other ways, was the fact that they have been competitive athletes. Um, so you talk to like an indoor pole vaulter, um, you know, yeah. someone who had, you know, been really successful in that in that frame. I mean, like, how, how do the athletes themselves feel about, you know, their uh, welcoming into the tech community? I mean, a lot of people who have participated in sports, especially at the professional level, I mean, I think it's a little different for people that are um, participating at the collegiate level and who aren't really considering it as being a career in their future. But a lot of the professional athletes were like, it's really great to be um, kind of accepted into this industry because once you have been an athlete for so long and you're, you know, there's only so many years that you can do this. Um, it's it's nice to be welcomed into an industry. I spoke to someone for this story who was like, if an Olympic um, athlete walked into my startup and was like, I just want to help you in any capacity. I don't really have a skill set suited towards tech. Mm -hmm. We hire me. She was like, I would hire that person in a heartbeat just because of what they have um, completed and done in their own life. And it was like every, almost every single person that I spoke to for the story, I was like, given um, the opportunity to hire two different people who have identical skill sets. Nothing is um, different between the two of them, but then you ask them, what do you do in your free time? And one person says, you know, I'm kind of a couch potato and I enjoy watching Netflix. <laughs> who would say that? Uh, <laughs> I would say that. Um, right, right, well. <laughs> but I'm a writer. Right. Um, but, and, and if the second person was like, you know, I love, I'm like super into running marathons, every single person was like, I would 100% 
pick the person who is the marathon runner. Right, right. And I mean, you know, it's probably not clear. There's probably not enough data to really map that out. But I mean, is that the right instinct? I mean, do you get a sense that the people that are hardcore athletes, weekend warriors, or even, you know, previously professional athletes, do they succeed at these companies? I mean, is there actually a correlation between that skill set and, and what you need to succeed at, you know, some of these companies? Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of qualities that tie into that, that prove, I mean, if you're working at a startup, you're not going to have a great deal of, um, life work balance. Like you have to hit the ground running every morning. You have to be okay with facing rejection and, you know, um, doing something again and again and again and proving that you can do that and doing that at a professional level really speaks to the type of person that you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And do they feel, I mean, does that sort of culture end up kind of pervading within the companies? Do, do they find that, you know, this sort of attracts other people that maybe aren't at that level, but they think that they are. And, and suddenly there's sort of like a, a culture of being an intense athlete uh, being constant companies. I just sort of see that myself. I feel like, especially VC firms, really expli- uh, you know, expressly like to describe themselves as being, you know, uh, catering well to extreme athletes. I, well, I mean, I also feel like in Silicon Valley itself, the people that li- live there are, you know, typically they've gone to Ivy League schools, right. they're pros, and their hobbies are, you know, being physically fit, being in these marathons. So it's like the, the culture that is kind of like attracting these types of people anyways. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, and probably makes them feel comfortable that, you know, if I worked at a company and I think I'm really good at this and, oh, look, we also hired someone who is an elite, elite athlete. I must be in their league. I must somehow be like yeah. c- capable in the same way. I think that they just like to even brush up against that. It's right. very appealing to them. Right, right. Um, uh, so who were some of the, the craziest athletes that, that you, or not, not crazy, but, you know, which were some of the more surprising athletes that you ended up speaking to or come, came across as you were reporting the story out? Um, Ashton Eaton, who I found on LinkedIn. <laughs> I didn't realize that he was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but he, he was really interesting. Um, he has won two gold me- medals. Uh, for the U.S. and the Olympics. In the decathlon, and, right? And the decathlon. Right. And now he is turning to a career in tech. Um, Neil Mueller was really interesting. He has won a number of world uh, Guinness World Records for like extreme activities. Like um, he recently rode across the Arctic, the Arctic Row or something. Sure. Um, sure. And, and he got some time off work to do that. They were they treated it almost like it was paternity leave. Um, and I feel like, I mean, it kind of just informs their whole workplace culture, the way that um, these athletes are sort of idolized and they would, you know, Ashton Eaton would take um, employees that he was working at a startup with on runs with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like you're getting this workout with this Olympian. Right. No, it sounds like a perk. It's, it sounds like something like if you pledge a certain amount of money, you get to do this. That's not actually what's happening here. But um, but yeah, I, I, I can I can understand the appeal. And and, and by the way, for yourself personally, in, in speaking to all of these athletes, I mean, did that inspire you at all to maybe, I don't know, step it up? Um, no, actually, I really thought that it would. And I was like, wow, turn of the new year. This is really going to, speaking to a bunch of athletes, it's really going to make me want to work out more. But no. No. And I, you know, I think it's funny. I, I, I uh, came across this idea for writing this story after speaking to someone for another story that I wrote, which was focused on dating. Um, and this girl who's a friend of mine said that she dated a guy who was really into like triathlons and marathon running. 
and their whole relationship became compromised because he was so obsessive about running. So I think it's like this degree of obsession that Silicon mm -hmm. Valley sort of takes with everything. Totally. Totally. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. Um, well, I'm also not becoming any sort of elite athlete. You're not. Uh, no, not really. Sounds like a lot of work. Sounds tiring. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm behind on my movies this year. Oh, you got to catch up. That's yeah. important. Right, right. That's the race I'm interested in. Um, all right, Zoe. Great work as always. Fun story. Uh, have you back on here soon. Thank you.